You're listening to the weekly message by St. Stephen's Episcopal Church. We are a church that strives to know, love, and serve God as we deepen our faith. We worship online via Zoom and at our House of Worship in Rochester, New York. To learn more, visit us at stephensrochester.org. Well, good morning, folks. Today, I am and with Sajina at uh, the home of our brother Solomon and his wife Asha down in Columbia, Maryland. And some of you know that our uh, her mother, my mother-in-law, Grace, is a, who's a regular part of our fellowship, now resides here. Uh, we had great fun yesterday celebrating her 75th birthday. But this morning, um, I have to confess, I'm feeling a little bit at risk, and I need your help because today's gospel includes that story about St. Thomas. You see, Sajina's family immigrated from India. What you may not know about India is that Indian Christians remember St. Thomas as their patron saint, as the founder of the very first Christian communities in India. What's more, my dear friend Moan, Thomas Matthew, is named after St. Thomas. So I am a bit in peril today as I speak to you. The family is right outside the door and on this Zoom session. I have to figure out how to say something good about St. Thomas. Otherwise, I may not get to eat lunch today. So how do I do that? Well, Perhaps the place to begin is with an observation that may not occur to you. Did you know that in John's gospel, other than this story at the very end, the only other place where Jesus is called God is in the prologue, the very first several verses of the gospel. Perhaps that's a clue to how we might understand Thomas as a gift to us. But first, Let's go ahead and name the elephant in the room. Somewhere along the line, the church got in the habit of describing Thomas as doubting Thomas. It's like some many centuries ago, a bunch of people were on a Zoom session back in the Middle Ages, and some preacher who didn't know what to preach that day just decided to pick on Thomas, calling him doubting Thomas and presenting him as the apostle Christians should not imitate. He must have preached that Thomas had doubt and Christians shouldn't doubt. Now, let me say up front, that is completely wrong on both counts. First, Thomas is actually a paradigm of faith for us. Second, if you don't have some element of uncertainty in your faith, well, then I would tell you that the God you're worshiping is an idol that you've invented yourself and not the infinite source of all good things we meet in Scripture and the sacraments. Let me explain. In our Thursday night covenant Bible study, we had a great conversation about Jesus and his authority. In particular, we considered the question of whether we will be healed from our suffering if we have faith and if we believe in Jesus. Of course, that begs the question, as I pointed out, of what we mean by those words. What do we mean by words like faith, belief, and heal? But today, I I want to point out, it also begs a second question. What's our alternative? 
If we yearn to be delivered from whatever suffering we are experiencing and trusting God is not part of the equation, well, then what exactly is our plan? I ask this because, first, the question itself is presupposed there as, you know, that there is an alternative. And second, so many of us live our lives as though we really believe that our only hope is to be realistic, whatever that means, and to take charge of our situation ourselves rather than risk trusting in God when it comes to securing deliverance from whatever overwhelms us. Plato helps us understand this, and I want to share uh, my screen now. Plato, uh, in his book, The Republic, tells of a people imprisoned deep in a cave in which there is a screen between them and the light above. And because of their captivity, they can only see what's on the screen. And so they think that what they see on the screen is reality. Indeed, they think that reality consists solely of what and who they see right there in the darkness. They can't hope, in other words, in things unseen because they assume that whatever they see is all there is. But of course, all they actually see are shadows. Reality is in the cave and outside the cave in the light. Many of us live in that kind of darkness, in the caves and crevices of life, like bats and moles. In what the Apostle Paul called the bondage of sin, all we see are shadows of reality. Unless we experience that transformation that I have talked so much about, especially during Easter, that transformation of our hearts and minds that are, that are the resurrected minds, resurrected by Christ's spirit, that, that open our eyes to things yet unseen, well, then we are very vulnerable to buying into false ideologies. As in this image, we see shadows of things, think we see things rightly, fear what we see, and then react. And we react in often self-destructive ways as we joust with shadows. Plato's point is that when we think the shadows we see are all there is, it's easy for us to develop a distorted worldview that is the ultimate human arrogance before God. We begin to worship our own reasoning abilities. We build towers of Babel as we exalt humankind above God, or worse, deny God's real presence in our lives altogether. We, creatures, deny our creator. Even if our words are filled with flowery phrases and we fly flags of religious devotion, our actions show the lie. Our actions show that that's all just for show. Our actions show that we actually trust only the shadows we see. We're trapped in a cave and can't get out of the cave unless someone penetrates our arrogance. Someone penetrates the, the darkness sufficiently to persuade us there's actually another world that we can't see that is filled with light, filled with bounteous splendor. I have 
spoken many times recently about something that I have dubbed white supremacist Christianism. I see that as one of the great threats of our lifetimes. Why? Because its proponents combine flowery phrases about God and flags of religious devotion as they march on the Capitol and other things with a shadowy account of the world that is contagious. And it's contagious only because its proponents don't recognize their isolation in the caves of white suburbia. And they truly believe that what they see is all there is. Their ideology is so pernicious because it invites you and me to embrace a toxic account of human freedom that begins with an unacknowledged premise. And that's what I want to shine light on today. This premise that we are self-created, or as I shall name it this morning, that we are the authors of our own stories. And the threat to you that I want to focus on and ask you to focus on this morning has to do with this question of your own suffering. Because if you buy into this white supremacist Christianism's account of freedom, and you may have already been infected with it, even if you're brown, then you may, like Plato's captives, become completely blind to the means through which God delivers us from our suffering. You will remain stuck, stuck in your suffering and unresponsive to God's efforts to deliver you. This is a big deal. The white supremacist Christianists ideology is propped up by two primary tenets. The first is one I've spoken about before, a shadow distortion of Romans chapter 10, you know, the one that says, you know, if you walk up to in your church, up you know, to the front of the church when you're age like seven and say that you believe Jesus is Lord, well, then you're saved. Of course, that's a parody of the gospel because the gospel without transformation is is no gospel at all. And it's quite unclear exactly what in this account you're being saved from. But today, my more urgent concern is with their second tenet, which is about freedom. In this kind of Christianism, freedom is named constantly as our greatest value. And when one asks what freedom is, well, we learn that freedom consists of being able to choose our own stories, being able to create our own stories. We're told that this is the American dream that this is what makes America great, that this is our right to to create our own stories. And if we want to make America great again, we need to return to that greatest value, which is to protect everyone's ability to choose our own stories without constraint. Now, white supremacist Christianists cherish their account of freedom. And that's why they defend so valiantly their right to create laws that diminish the liberties of others. That's why we're seeing what we're seeing in Florida and, you know, in in many other states, you know, such great fear of teaching the truth about our racialized American history and present. But what's so ironic to me is that this self-serving account of freedom is the same reason used to justify our abortion laws, one of their great ideological targets. You see, 
The Supreme Court reasoning that justified a woman's legal right to abortion arose from this same toxic conception of freedom that justifies laws enshrining white supremacy in the structures of our society. Now, I'm not trying to take on abortion today. We have a doctrine on that as the Episcopal Church. That's not the point. What I'm asking you to focus on is what the reasoning that was given by our Supreme Court is. You see, I was reading recently a portion of Planned Parenthood versus Casey from 1992, and the majority justified their decision on the basis of certain claims about freedom. And they said this, the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. In other words, as Pope John Paul noted, freedom enjoys a primacy over truth to the point that truth itself would be considered a creation of freedom. The idea that freedom enjoys primacy over truth, that truth is our own invention, our own creation, is at the heart of white Christian supremacy. That's precisely what we see and hear from Donald Trump, from Governor DeSantis of Florida and and all the other imitators. Truth is whatever power says it is. Truth is not something we receive. Truth is whatever serves the story we want to create for ourselves. Here's the problem. Scripture repeatedly teaches us that the idea that our stories begin at our birth and that freedom consists of the power to create our own stories is false, completely false. It it, it opposes that completely. My mentor, Stanley Harawas helped me see my own error in believing that this false account of freedom is the foundation of our American dream. For it isn't. He said, the good news of the gospel is that we are not fated to be determined by our own false stories of freedom. For the truth is that since we are God's creation, we are not free to choose our own stories. Here's the point. Freedom lies not in creating our lives, but in learning to recognize our lives are gifts. The great magic of the gospel is that it provides us with the skills to acknowledge our lives are created. In any true account of the gospel of Jesus Christ, learning to see life as God's gift is the transformation that we're talking about at Easter, the transformation that makes the gospel good news. You see, freedom lies not in being able to write our own stories, but in learning to receive our lives. Open hands to recognize that our our lives are pure gift. What an eye-opening thing that was for me. For if we believe that freedom consists of the ability to write our own stories and that therefore we are responsible for writing our own stories well, well, then what are we to say to ourselves when we screw it up? What are we to say to ourselves when we discover that our stories are not turning out as well as we had hoped? And that's where I think this question about our own suffering, our own healing comes in. 
whether we're talking about deliverance from oppression, deliverance from suffering, deliverance from our anxiety about our own death, it gets to the same point. If you see yourself as responsible for exercising your freedom, understood in this distorted way as the ability to write your own story, then what do you say to yourself when you discover, for example, that you've married someone who thinks that two shall become one in marriage, means that your identity must be collapsed into his, that your own power to create your own story is to be subordinated to his. When you discover yourself so oppressed in your marriage that you awaken each morning aware of how much you hate your life. What do you say to yourself when the pain and destructive character of the disease that is afflicting you is so disabling? that you can no longer do the things that you always did before, can no longer love the way you did before, so that you awaken each morning to that same refrain about how much you hate your life. What do you say to yourself when you see death hanging out near your door, hovering like a vulture over you, and, you've com- and you're completely overwhelmed by this anxiety that just bubbles out of you, that, 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 that dominates you, that, that, an anxiety that your life will end prematurely and not in the way you scripted it. If freedom means that you are the author of your own life, what do you say to yourself when it doesn't go as you scripted it? Are you guilty? Is the evidence that your life is not going as scripted evidence of your own negligence? Is it your fault that you're sick? Are you suffering because of some sin you can't forgive yourself for? Because in the caves in which you're captive, you can't see beyond the darkness, can't see beyond the shadows, and therefore can't trust a God who forgives can't hope in things unseen and especially can't trust the authority of an unseen God to wash away the stains of any sins you may have committed so very long ago. Some of you have experienced oppression beyond my imagining. Some of you endure the lingering consequences of sin done by you and to you as part of the story you thought you were authoring. Some of you soon will face major surgeries that you never thought would be needed. Some wrestle with debilitating diseases that you fear may be terminal. And you may be asking at this point in your life, if you place your trust in Jesus, will Jesus heal you? Or if you've not yet experienced the deliverance you've been seeking, Does that mean your faith is deficient? Does it mean that God can't be trusted? Now, I want to make sure you understand that this is not an abstract question for me. Not in the least. It's very personal to me. I'm trying to share my screen. Let me know. There you go. Yeah, it's not it's not an abstract question for me. You see, at age 56, my late wife, Claudia, was diagnosed with endometrial cancer. That was not the life that either she nor I had scripted. 
She never dreamed that she would die without seeing her grandchildren. I never imagined I would drown in the abyss of heartbreak and loneliness. And neither of us imagined that our three adult children would go through the major milestones of adult life without their mother's guiding presence. And I remember well that there were nights when the pain from her tumors were so great that she had no capacity to care for others, to see others, no capacity to love others whom she had so long cherished. She was pushed beyond her capacity to focus on anyone else or anything else other than her pain and her desire to be delivered from it. How we prayed for her deliverance, for our deliverance. So did we receive the healing for which we so faithfully prayed? Absolutely, absolutely. Now, was she cured of her cancer? No, no, she died from it. But was she delivered from the pain that dehumanized her, that destroyed her relational capacity, that that pain that led her to lift up that refrain about how much she hated her life? Absolutely. Absolutely. If you think that freedom consists of being the author of your own story, well, then you are destined for miserable moments of a lonely existence, even when you're surrounded by those who love you. But if you recognize our creator, our sustainer is the true author of all of our stories and that life is all gift, well, then you get eyes to see beyond those shadows to the reality of God's wonderful faithfulness to us. You see, Claudia's cancer wasn't part of the story we had scripted, and God didn't script it either. God didn't cause her cancer. God gave her the gift of life, of a wonderful life, and that life included the possibility of both evil and mutations in her reproductive cells. God didn't cause cancer, but God delivered her from her suffering. God answered our prayers, but in God's time and in God's way. And before she died, Claudia gained an exquisite ability to relate intimately to all who gathered by her bedside to say goodbye in the last six weeks of her life. It was was an extraordinarily intimate and holy period of our life together. She loved them. She loved us and she loved us well. Freedom is about learning to recognize that life is a gift. When we learn to recognize that life is a gift, well, then that changes everything about our lives, including how we see the twists and turns that we didn't script ourselves. When we see life as a gift, we're liberated from the gift, from the, from the guilt that we've so long nurtured for things that went wrong liberated from the self-shame that we've cultivated for decades as our go-to explanation for why bad things happen to us, liberated from the responsibility to make the lives of everyone we love turn out right. When we recognize at last that all of life is a gift, we can simply receive, receive the gifts 
of joy and peace that God desires and freely gives to us. Claudia ultimately recognized that life is a gift. She died free. And in so doing, she bore witness, as we are all called to bear witness, to the real presence of our loving God who makes us part of his story and who provides us all we need to return his love and to love each other. Which leads me to St. Thomas. You see, once we recognize we actually can't create our own stories and only can receive the life that God gives us, the essential question becomes whether we can trust Jesus to write our stories well. Jesus breathed on the apostles. Jesus breathes on us and recreates us in his image. He is the author of our lives in this new age. Can Jesus be trusted to write, to write our stories well? After all, it's so hard to invest our trust and hopes in things unseen. He's dead. Who exactly is this Jesus we are asked to trust with responsibility for our lives? Well, I mentioned earlier that it's a huge mistake to call St. Thomas Doubting Thomas, for that completely misses John's point about the Apostle Thomas. That Thomas, who insisted on physical evidence, heard and trusted. That Thomas, who was there when Jesus called Lazarus out of that cave, out of the shadows. That Thomas experienced uncertainty, but ultimately trusted. That Thomas, who was there when Jesus called all of us out of our caves and who saw Jesus enter into that cave himself and emerge on the other side of the cross as the exalted one, that Thomas trusted. You see, it was this first Sunday after Easter, and the disciples were gathered in Jesus' name. Now, we don't know if there was bread or wine, but what we do know was that the body and blood of Jesus was present among them. And Thomas encountered the Messiah. And Thomas trusted. And in John's gospel, it is Thomas alone who tells us on whose authority we are sent to share the light with all who persist in their caves. Thomas is the only one in John's gospel who tells us who this Jesus is whom we are called to trust. Thomas is the one who heard the voice of Jesus. Thomas is the one he answered with, my Lord, my God, my Lord and my God. So through St. Thomas, our beloved St. Thomas, the patron saint of India, John tells us that when we trust Jesus to deliver us from all that ails us to, to provide the healing we seek, we are trusting our creator, the one whose nature is never to be except to be with us. John, I mean, Jesus does not send us out to create our own stories. He sends his spirit upon us and tells us to receive our storied lives as gift. And only when we do that, are we free? May the Spirit 
enable you to hear God's word this morning so that you might become truly free. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's sermon, and we hope you're able to join us next week.